this is going to be like my life's, you know, work. It's not like something I'm trying to, to build and sell as quickly as possible. It's, I, I really do take the mentality of we're on year three of an 100 year journey. And how do we actually build a, a model and a corporate infrastructure that is sustainable and scalable? Hey, this is Jesse here, and you're about to hear my discussion with Jacob from Novig, which is a commission-free sports betting exchange. We're releasing this episode on the same day that Novig announced a $6.4 million seed round. So naturally, we go deep on that topic, including why Jacob decided to not include any industry investors on the Novig cap table. We also explore the mechanics of the exchange, including its unique business model, why Jacob thinks a commission-free exchange is the future of betting, and his experience as the only betting company to ever go through Y Combinator. I really enjoyed this discussion with Jacob, and I hope you do too. But before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the Challenger Series Summit is coming to Las Vegas this October before G2E. Co-hosted by GeoComply and City, the Challenger Series Summit is a unique networking opportunity to learn from US iGaming founders and entrepreneurs who will be sharing the hacks, tips, and tricks to achieve high growth. I was fortunate enough to attend the last edition of the series earlier this year in New York and can confirm that this is a must-attend event for industry founders and senior executives alike. RSVP to attend the Las Vegas Summit on October 8th before G2E, which you can do by visiting www.geocomply.com. All right, we are rolling once again on the Betting Startups Podcast. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm pretty excited for this one because we have one of the newest operators here with us today. And you know, I guess just thinking about the landscape right now, we're a little bit five years past the PASPA repeal and sort of the early innings, quote unquote, of regulated sports betting in the U.S. Uh, might be behind us. And for that reason, there's probably not going to be too many more pure play startups launching as an operator. So, you know, to have one of them with us here today is very exciting. And Jacob, you're a busy man right now. You just launched your beta a few weeks ago. Uh, you've also just announced a $6 million plus raise. So, Appreciate you finding a few minutes to jump on the pod here with us today. How are you doing uh, in a very hectic time of year for you and the Novig team? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to be on. I've been a big fan of your podcast for over a year now, and uh, it's, it's exciting to be on. It's uh, definitely a, a busy time here, but it feels great to have the product in users' hands, you know, after over a year and a half of building and, you know, excited to, to bring it to even more folks this fall. Awesome. Well, look, I mean, being that Novik is an exchange, there's a lot to unpack here and a lot I want to talk about. But let's just start at the very beginning here. If you could give folks listening a quick sense of, you know, who you are, your background, maybe some of the major stops along the way before you co-founded Novig. Sure. So I actually never had any intention of, of starting my own company. I'm not someone who like romanticized the, the founder journey and was looking for some idea. The idea really fell in my lap. I was studying uh, philosophy and economics at Harvard. I worked at a hedge fund. I worked in, in investment banking. I worked in politics for a couple summers as well. And um, I was actually applying to law school when I started the company. And on the side, I'd been a big trader in securities markets, Forex, options, crypto, prediction markets, you name it. I was a big poker player as well. And then ultimately got into sports betting, always viewed sports betting primarily as a financial product, not just an entertainment product. Although, of course, sports betting is a ton of fun. Um, but Really saw a lot of my friends and myself limited and kicked off of different sports books. Saw this problem firsthand, which is that the only way to bet is against the house. They take 8 to 10% of your winnings, making it virtually impossible for casual sports bettors to be profitable. Only about 1% to 2% of people are. And if you are one of those few, you get limited, you get kicked off, you get refused payouts. So I ended up joining communities of sharp bettors on Discord, Signal, Telegram 
trying to circumvent the house, bet against one another, one another at the odds that we set. Saw it work in a low-tech environment, but there's liquidity issues, legal issues, there's counterparty risk. So ultimately, I was looking for a platform exactly, exactly like the one we're building as a user myself. Saw it didn't really exist and set out to build it. Had a brilliant friend of mine from Harvard, my co-founder uh, and CTO, one of my close friends, Kalechi. He was doing high-frequency trading on Wall Street. He was actually going to do a PhD in high-energy particle physics, but then I convinced him that there's um, a lot of opportunity to build a, a proper exchange in a sports betting space. And you know, I was lucky, lucky enough to have him join me on the journey. Awesome. I'd love to pull on that thread just a little bit here, Jacob, and just, I guess, the origins of Novig, right? I mean, as you say, you sort of encountered the age-old problem of, of getting limited once you have a bit of success with a lot of the operators that are out there today. Uh, so to sort of scratch your own itch, you decided to, to go for it and build an exchange, which is obviously a very audacious ambition. Um, but just, I guess, at the origins of it, right? Like, how did you go from zero to one, kind of identifying that problem and, and as you say, sort of onboarding your co-founder? And then from there, like, what do you guys do next, really, to kind of get this thing going from just an idea to something uh, more tangible towards where you're at today? Yeah, so, you know, the first few months, I really tried to learn everything there was to know about, one, starting a company, two, the history of the sports betting space, and then three, more specifically, um, the betting exchange space. I talked with a few professors uh, at Harvard Business School that, you know, had spent over a decade in the space. I talked to people that worked at the European exchanges to understand the landscape over there. And uh, then I ended up talking to just, you know, dozens of users to validate the idea, to see it wasn't just me and my close group of sharp bettors that had this problem. It was also casual bettors that really felt like the current offerings were, were quite lacking. There's very little product differentiation. It wasn't just uh, an unprofitable experience, but it was one that was immensely frustrating and quite boring after a while. We wanted to build something that didn't just make a more profitable betting experience, but also a more dynamic, a more social, a more fair and transparent uh, betting experience. And uh, it was only after several months of really trying to know more about startup law than my lawyers and more about sports betting than my advisors and knowing more about you know the history of, of it than any of the other operators. Uh, once I felt like I was at that point, then it really was about how do we take on capital? How do we really build a roadmap? And over two years ago, I actually drew out a rough sketch of what I thought the next couple of years would look like. And it really, it on the, on the thing that I drew out, it had us launching in Colorado uh, this October or November, which is basically uh, exactly you know, how things unfolded. And, you know, I remember at that time people saying that I was, you know, that I was uh, this incredibly naive, you know, 22 year old kid. But ultimately it's, I think that um, it's about being able to translate ideas into, into practice. And actually it's like Ray Dalio's adage of, of shapers, people who can, you know, aren't necessarily like the most brilliant people, but are able to assemble a team and really lay out the, the steps required to get from point, you know, from zero to one. Awesome. Well, like you say, with your two-year uh, roadmap, you're, you're fairly close to, to aligning to it. And as you just alluded to in the coming months here, Novig will be launching in Colorado, which is its first state. So given that Novig is pre-launch right now, let's just start with the platform itself. And if you could give folks listening a high concept overview of the model and you know, for folks listening as well that might be familiar with some of the other exchange products that have come on to the regulated U.S. market, you know, could you maybe compare and contrast what Novig is going to bring to the market vis-a-vis -vis some of the other uh, incumbents that are out there? Sure. So I'll start with just an overview of what we're building. We're, we're building a high-frequency commission-free betting exchange. The idea is basically to allow people to bet directly against other individuals or institutions on a public exchange, the same way you trade securities or crypto, or the same way you use any two-sided exchange like eBay 
So instead of sports books and some backroom pricing the markets, we let the uh, public markets price these contracts. And you know the way it works is it operates on a central limit order book, basically treating these as binary future contracts. I know many of your listeners are very familiar with the exchange space, so I won't explain the, the fundamentals of, of exchanges, but I think there are a number of key ways in which our platform is, is different. One, I think our algorithm and our technology is liquidity maximizing ways that um, our competitors aren't too. And most importantly, I think our business model is fundamentally different from uh, other exchanges in that we offer commission-free betting for all recreational and casual bettors. So I think exchanges often are, are quite complicated for people to understand. I think that's why platforms like Betfair had a hard time taking off initially in the UK is that there's just a tremendous amount of education involved. And I think our, our core value proposition is, is re it really couldn't be simpler. It's, you know, you and I want to bet $100 each on Red Sox Yankees, winner gets $200, we don't take a cut. It's, it's as simple as that. And on all other platforms, whether it's an exchange or a traditional retail sports book, winner would only get about, you know, 180 to 188. So that's really, you know, to be able to say whether you're losing thousands or making tens of thousands on sports betting, we're putting one to 3% back in your pocket per bet. It's something that really, I think anyone can understand. We also, I think have, and first let me say, I really have a tremendous amount of respect for people like Alex and Dean and Jake who um, have been building exchanges for a number of years. But, you know, I think our fundamental approach is to build as much internally as possible. And I think that, you know, when we initially started the company, we thought we would, uh, you know, outsource a lot of it. I think that's, that was an initial pivot was that we realized, and, and, you know, again, I don't mean this with any disrespect, but the industry I think is really built upon decade old technology and that there's a lot of room to innovate, not just from a uh, product offering perspective, but also from a fundamental technology perspective, from an odds making perspective, from a brand perspective. And I think we were really trying to take the approach of internalizing as much of that as possible. And then just to the business model point, I think being able to say we're shifting the fundamental business model from charging losers or charging users indiscriminately to charging winners exclusively, I think is quite a radical transformation in this industry to be able to say our incentives are entirely aligned with our users. So we want you to make more money because only to the extent that you make money, do we make money? So, you know, I think that is uh, really the first of its kind platform. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that the approach we're taking is we view ourselves primarily not as a sports betting company in a traditional sense, but more as a fintech company, a prediction market company um, that's trying to take over the sports betting space. So, you know, in terms of the people we've hired, they're exclusively from outside of the industry, software engineers from, from Meta and Microsoft, top computer science, PhD programs, machine learning programs, traders from companies like Jane Street, where Kalechi worked. And I think that you know, we feel like bringing the state of the art from best practices from Wall Street and Silicon Valley will enable us to stand out uh, and build the best user experience possible. I want to zoom in quickly on the business model, which you just touched upon, Jacob. And you mentioned it's a 0% VIG exchange. And basically, you guys will monetize the platform by charging winning bettors. Now, just for clarity, uh, for folks listening, are you speaking about charging them on a per bet basis? If a specific bet wins, are you charging a commission on that? Or alternatively, is it more across the entire P&L uh, of a specific customer and, and sort of charging across a time series based on how they've performed over, say, a given month? Can you just sort of put some clarification around the business model there? Yeah, for sure. So our core offering is you can take the best price that's available in the market, or you can name your own price, which we will then try to match against another user, or we can actually be the counterparty ourselves. And that's something I should have mentioned with the previous question is 
I think the primary thing that differentiates us from other exchanges is that we have an internal trading desk that we can provide liquidity ourselves. And I think the biggest challenge um, of an exchange really, you know, getting to scale is overcoming this cold start problem where you go into a particular market and there's no liquidity to trade against. So we'll be able to ensure that there was always a baseline level of liquidity in all of our markets. And that if we can't find another counterparty, that we'll step in and be that counterparty. To the question of our business model, you know, we're still ironing out some of the, the specific thresholds, but basically the idea is we won't charge you on the first $10,000 you make on our platform in, in lifetime profits. And then beyond that, we'll have some sort of fee structure that's similar to Betfair premium charges, if you're familiar with that structure. So starting at, let's say, roughly 18% from 10,000 to 100,000 uh, in lifetime profits, and then 33% beyond 100,000. You know, some of those numbers we're probably going to tweak slightly, but that's the basic idea is that, you know, unless you're making tens of thousands of dollars on our platform, which, you know, we expect less than 5% of our users to actually be obtaining, then we won't ever charge you at all. Gotcha. And this might have answered my next question, but I'll ask it anyways. Um, you know, I mean, look, there's other, I guess, what I'll call social peer-to-peer -peer betting platforms that are operating right now in the U.S. And they have some semantics to their model such that they don't get licensed as operators. And they're also charging a 0% big, which is one of the, I guess, semantics of their platforms. I'm just curious, like, as you thought about the model for Novig and you sort of looked at the landscape, um, you obviously made the decision to regulate Novig as an operator. I'm just sort of curious sort of how you thought about that and what led to that decision, as opposed to taking the position of some of these other social betting platforms, which again, from their perspective, don't fall under the regulatory regime of a licensed uh, betting operator. Yeah, so I, I will say when when I started the company, that was my initial approach was we wouldn't qualify as an operator. We weren't necessarily setting the lines ourselves. We wouldn't have action in the underlying events, which are the two primary criteria for being considered an operator. But ultimately, we felt like if we wanted to actually reach scale and bring this to as many people as possible, it'd be necessary to be regulated as a trad traditional sports betting operator. And, you know, I, I've read their legal opinions. I'm not sure how much they'll hold up. You know, I'm not a lawyer, but I think we realized if we wanted to get on the App Store, get on Google Play, advertise with key partners, um, work with key payment service providers, it was necessary to be fully regulated as, as an operator. And that's the approach we're taking. I also want to come back to something Melty touched upon a few minutes ago, which is just around, I guess, the market education piece. And look, I mean, as I mentioned, regulated betting is, is you know, just five years old now, exchange betting even less. And that's a fairly new product for the market still, which is still just, I guess, starting to understand core betting concepts. So I guess from a market education perspective, how are you sort of thinking about getting the value proposition of the exchange model out there and ultimately drive adoption of the product? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that our approach to this is slightly different from uh, other exchanges in this space. I think that we're not really just building for, uh, you know, hyper price sensitive, sharp bettors or, or Wall Street type folks. We really are trying to build the best user experience the best betting app on the market, period. And we feel like building on an exchange technology stack is the way to get there. Um, but we think that we are offering a superior product to any of our competitors, full stop. So we think we have more profitable uh, experience. We're going to build a better user experience. We're going to have better onboarding, better, better withdrawals, uh, more dynamic, more fun way of betting. And so it's not like, I think, and we will have an educational component of saying, this is how you make odds. You know, this is how you name your own price if you want to do that. But our fundamental product, I think, will be surprisingly familiar to, you know, users of the DraftKings and FanDuel's of the world. And we're not really trying to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. Um, of course, we, you know, we are bringing a number of products that are new, but 
if users don't want to engage in the in, in those aspects of the platform. It's not like you'll have to watch some 30 minute tutorial in order in order to use our platform. I think that was like initially uh, a mistake we made was when we were trying to you know brand ourselves as this the high frequency nerds coming to disrupt the space and people said, I don't think I'm smart enough to use our platform. I think we realized there's something fundamentally broken about that message. And now being able to say, yeah, you and your buddy each want to put up $50, you get to set the odds, you get to keep all of your winnings. We're not taking a cut from that. It really doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand. So yeah, I'd say that's our approach to education. Gotcha. And that makes a ton of sense. And again, coming back to an earlier theme you touched upon, which is just the, the tech stack that you and the team are building. And exchange technology is notoriously difficult to build and, and to scale, right? I mean, everything from uh, a matching engine to an order book and all the sort of the underlying components needed to power an exchange, you know, it's, it's challenging, right? Um, Alex from Sport Trade has talked on other podcasts about the challenges they've had. And, you know, it, it's, 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 it's an uphill battle. So I'm just sort of curious, Jacob, like, if you could talk about, I guess, the, the R&D journey, I'll call it, building some of the underlying platform, and particularly now as the beta product is coming out to market and users are getting their hands on it and, and uh, battle testing it to some extent, what's just the, the R&D and development journey been like and, and sort of what fed into the decision to ultimately build versus buy the core technology? Yeah, so, you know, I think that initially we wanted to build and then everyone said, oh, you know, the way this industry works is that people use these certain platforms and, you know, they use these certain partners to build their technology stack for them. And we sort of bought into that. We felt like, oh, they probably know more than us. You know, we'll, we'll follow that route. And then we realized like, no, if you really do want to build the best technology, the best experience possible, you can't be using the same tech that some other operator is using. And, uh, you know, you really need to be able to understand at the, the most specific, the most technical level, how your platform works. So we decided to internalize everything. Um, I think unlike a couple of the other exchanges in this space, we felt like, you know, we need to hire the, the most brilliant people in the market, even if that is at a significant premium to what we can hire other people at in order to, to really build everything internally. So, you know, I think that's really the approach that we've taken. And, you know, it, it did take some time. I think we probably would have been able to launch if we bought some technology rather than build it ourselves. We would have been able to launch, you know, maybe six months ago or even more than that. But I think we are moving incredibly fast. I think, you know, if you look at how long some of the other exchanges in this space took to get from zero to one, it, you know, it took them, you know, four years or so. And I think we've done that in about 22 months, you know, roughly. And I think that that's an incredibly important value to us as a company is being able to shorten the feedback loop. Something we like to say a lot is version one. It's not just about how to make version one as incredible and delightful of, a, of, a, of an app as possible, but it's how to get to version 10 as quickly as possible and being able to shorten that feedback loop. Well, just as an example, we, we launched our beta last week and initially we, we got some feedback from customers that they wanted certain features. And from the time we, we gathered that feedback to the time we built the designs and then actually implemented it on both the back end and the front end and then shipped it to users was only about, I'd say, three and a half days. And so I think we're able to really move faster than our competitors, not just in the exchange space, but sports betting more broadly. And, you know, it's really just about how to have that sort of hockey stick type growth. And I think the way to do that is really prioritizing speed over everything else. And that's also, I think, our approach to building a team. We really felt like we have to build almost like an Avengers type squad of the brightest minds out there, the people who are experts in, you know, like our head of operations is from the general manager of DoorDash. And, you know, our head of quantitative research was a leading prediction market expert in, in blank and blank. And, 
you know, I think that's our approach to building a team. So, you know, we have about 12 to 15 people full time. And I think we're able to do with that team what other teams with, you know, 90 or 100 people aren't able to do. Awesome. And maybe just talk through, I guess, what the next few months look like for Novig. I mean, as, as we've talked about now, the beta product is just getting into end users' hands. And, you know, you've just raised fresh capital, which we'll come back to in a moment here. But, you know, what do, I guess, the next few months, particularly over the NFL season, look like with the launch of Colorado? And, and what can people expect to see, I guess, out of Novig over the next little while? Yeah, so we're, we, we're launching just with main markets and just with the major American sports. We think it's important to concentrate liquidity and not have it be spread out over hundreds or thousands of markets, but ultimately we do have a maximalist view of markets and want to be able to offer market in not just everything that traditional operators offer, but, you know, a lot more, basically anything that anyone is willing to seed themselves will be able to support. So, you know, we're really using this upcoming football season to get our product to be as, you know, as seamless as possible before expanding beyond Colorado to, to other states uh, for next football season. So, you know, thinking in terms of what's on the roadmap, you know, expanding to parlays, both with traditional markets, also requests for quote parlays, exotic derivatives, first half, second half totals, player props, expanding to, to less traditional sports. You know, there are a number of, of product features as well that we're uh, hoping to, to offer users, trading with realized profits, being able to, um, you know, manage positions and the portfolio construction in ways that are more reminiscent of traditional financial exchanges. Um, paramutual markets. There are a number of things that we want to implement. I think the, the core focus is really getting the main markets for NFL, college football, college basketball, NBA, MLB to be, uh, you know, as as incredible of a user experience as possible. And then we'll expand beyond that to, to other sports, expand geographically, expand feature sets and so on. Awesome. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about Novig's experience going through Y Combinator. If I'm not mistaken, uh, I think you're the first guest to go through YC. I mean, we've had a few on that have gone through Techstars and other accelerators, but you know, Y Combinator, I think is still generally seen as sort of the gold standard of startup accelerators. And obviously no shortage of unicorn companies have uh, emerged from YC over the years. So you're in very good company. Um, it's not also that often that I guess betting companies have been enrolled into YC. So I'd love to just, you know, get a bit of a look behind the curtain, Jacob, and wonder if you're willing to sort of share some of your experience going through your cohort last summer and, you know, the major learnings or takeaways you took from your time at Y Combinator. Yeah, for sure. I I, I think I I believe we were the the first and only company that sports betting operator to, to have gone through YC. But yeah, it was really uh, a phenomenal experience. I, I think I'm at my core, I'm a skeptic. So I kind of went in thinking, oh, it's probably not all that, but really had a tremendous experience being, first of all, just being surrounded by people building cutting edge uh, companies in generative AI and healthcare and dev tools and fintech and crypto. It, it was uh, really cool to just have peers who are going through the same process. I think sometimes the founder journey can be kind of lonely and uh, it, it was just cool to have friends who are going through the same sorts of issues with hiring and firing and fundraising and marketing and uh, legal issues and so on. The second is that, you know, the main takeaway, it's like YC's motto is build something people want. And I think that people often think in the startup space, they delude themselves that they, they're really trying to go through the motions of what a successful company looks like, rather than actually focusing on really shipping a product that people not just use, but are, are thrilled to use that they, this is like part of, becomes part of their core identity. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do. Um, not just think, uh, how do we get to the next fundraise or how do we do something that makes us look like we're, we're succeeding, but how do, how do we actually, you know, our approach is sort of like build for sports betters by sports betters. 
which is sort of a cliche, but ultimately that is our driving ethos. It's really, you know, also this sort of no bullshit mentality. I think that lots of times when, you know, especially in the VC space, but in the startup space more broadly, people are always trying to make it seem like they're, they're killing it. And, you know, it's, I think if, if you really want to be successful, you have to be you know, radically honest with the people around you and also with yourself and think, you know, what are the shortfalls? How do you actually, you know, do a prognosis of what went wrong and how to so make sure that doesn't happen going forward? And yeah, I think that's, that was one of our key takeaways, but there are also just lots of fun experiences being able to kick back and have, you know, beers with the found, uh, with the partners of YC meet founders of Twitch and, you know, Dropbox and uh, Instacart, you know, some of whom are, we're lucky to call uh, investors, um, as well as people like Joe Montana and Paul Graham, the sort of the grandfather of, of Silicon Valley. So yeah, it was, you know, it also just, it's, it's, it's fun to be wined and dined by, by investors, but ultimately I think that what makes you successful is being able to tune all that out and really getting into the weeds and rolling up your sleeves and doing the hard work. Awesome. Well, you just name dropped a couple new folks on your cap table. So it seems like the perfect segue to talk about this new funding that was just announced the other day. Novig closing a six plus million dollar round. Um, obviously, you just named a couple of the folks, but can you just give people listening, Jacob, uh, a bit more context around this fundraise? You know, who else might have participated in the round and sort of what are you looking at as milestones to achieve with the new capital? Yeah, so our round, which is around $6.4 million, was led by Lux Capital, phenomenal tier one fund in New York that primarily invests, invests in deep tech and space tech and defense tech and uh, Innospar Capital and AI fund based in Boston, Paul Graham, Joe Montana, who I think many of our, our users are excited to hear is on our cap table, is a, a you know, big fan of ours. And it was, you know, one of, it was a very cool experience to meet him and talk to his kids and um, yeah, founders of Instacart and Dropbox um, as well, and all, a bunch of other funds that are sort of in the sort of YC uh, ecosystem. And uh, yeah, Lux Capital and Innospark actually uh, led our pre-seed round back in February of, of 22. So it's cool to both have like a mix of new investors as well as the existing uh, investors on our cap table double down. And um, yeah, you know, it's really been cool to, you know, it's we're, when we go to their portfolio company meetings, it's like all... Uh, you know, LLM type companies and sort of cutting cutting edge machine learning. And they're like people trying to build factories in space and do crazy things with genomics. And then there's like us, you know, building a high frequency sports betting. But, you know, it's cool to really, I think ultimately it goes to our, you know, our uh, mentality of ourselves that we're not just like a, any other sports betting company, but ultimately do see ourselves as outsiders and sort of have a chip on our shoulder in that sense. Yeah, I actually just wanted to ask you about that, Jacob. I mean, just the names you just mentioned that are on your cap table, noticeably absent on that list are any of the sort of quote unquote industry investors that we hear associated with a lot of new fundings in this space. And, you know, talking to you uh, a couple of times prior to today, you know, you talked a little bit about that strategy and, and almost that conscious decision to put non-industry people on your cap table. And I know through this fundraising process, you did speak with a lot of industry investors, but ultimately decided to go in a different direction. And I'm just curious if, if you can maybe explain a bit of the thinking behind that decision, because it is, frankly, a bit of a contrarian one to other perspectives we've heard on the podcast from other founders that have raised to have sort of shared their experience that raising from industry investors is actually an accelerant for them. You've kind of taken the, the other position. I'm just sort of curious to kind of hear your mindset and, and thinking behind that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I, I would say our basic approach is to keep investors and advisors as two distinct things. And, you know, I think it's sort of like our approach with with hiring. We we found that 
the people who were able to think in the most out-of-the-box ways and really take a long-term vision were those that weren't super ingrained in the industry already. I think when you've spent decades in, in, in within an industry, you sort of think that, you know, the status quo won't change. And we had a number of investors in this space say, you know, if you want to, to succeed, you should pivot to B2B and white label your exchange and sell to the existing operators. And they just weren't able to fathom a new entrant in the market actually taking hold. They thought there'd be this sort of, you know, there'd be M&A activity and, you know, you would only have like three or four players in the space. And our view, I think, is very much opposed to that idea. It's that there's no product differentiation in this space. Where you decide to bet, it's sort of like deciding where you want to play blackjack when you go to Vegas. It's the same game, the same odds wherever you go. Your decision comes down to convenience or promo or brand loyalty. But we're trying to change the fundamental rules of the game, offering intrinsic value to our users. And I think that people who had backed companies that had disrupted and revolutionized other sort of legacy industries were able to see that long-term vision and weren't asking us, oh, how do you turn a profit in the next 12 months? That's not to say that those aren't important questions. And I think highly of lots of investors in the space and I'm friendly with a bunch and I'm sure some of them are, are listening now. And it's not to say we won't ever raise from people within the industry, but felt like, you know, when you're deciding who to take money from, I think there are a lot of founders that are just desperate to take money from any investor that is willing to. And my mentality was you're deciding who you want to partner with for the next decade. And it has there has to be a strong mutual fit. You have to be able to answer questions. You know, we had a, an investor that wanted to invest lots and lots of money at a at a great valuation, but ultimately wanted to take the company in a direction we didn't feel comfortable with and decided it wasn't the right partnership. And it was obviously a hard decision to make, but ultimately probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. No, that makes a ton of sense. I got one more question for you just on the fundraising journey here. And again, this is a bit through the lens of talking to a lot of industry investors and a lot of the sentiment, obviously, we've been hearing within the industry over the last, I don't know, six months, a little bit longer, maybe, is that people with capital to deploy are now obviously prioritizing revenue and profit than you know, sort of the growth at all costs mentality uh, is sort of now in the past with cheap capital. And, you know, against that backdrop, as you were out there on your fundraising journey, and again, maybe talking more to non-industry investors, what was the sentiment out there? And I guess just given that Novig is pre-launch, I mean, it, it's very much investing in the opportunity. Um, what was some of the feedback maybe you heard about what investors saw in the opportunity and, and particularly those that ultimately made a decision to back you in this round? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So, I, you know, I think the fundamental approach of VCs from uh, within the industry is very different from that of, you know, traditional large Silicon Valley type investors. I think traditional Silicon Valley investors are thinking very much in terms of the power law of, you know, there will be one company we invest in that will return the entire fund. So they're looking for a company that has a thousand X potential, not how to remake eight to 10 bets that will all two to five X and make a modest return for the fund, which, you know, it, I'm, that's not to say that that approach is bad, but it's a very different way of thinking when you're thinking like, how do we actually invest in a company that has the potential to be a $10, $20 billion company and not just, you know, double its value and then sell to FanDuel or whatever. So they shared our basic view that the fundamental business model of this industry is broken and untenable. There's only really one profitable company, despite there being, you know, close to $300 billion of betting volume in the country, uh, which is crazy. You know, the CAC has gone through the roof probably something like from 150 to 750 in the last three years nationwide. And there's no product differentiation. So it's difficult for them to actually, you know, to sustain that levels of profit without spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, ultimately, if you're thinking about the future growth of the industry, you can't just rely on geographic expansion, which 
up until now has really been the primary fuel for the growth of this industry. So going forward, we actually have to think, how do we expand our industry to, to new heights? And the way to do that really is to remove the intermedi intermediary from the bet, from these bets and to create a true two-sided open exchange, the way other financial products are, are structured. There's really no other industry that regularly limits and bans their most eager, their, their, their users that want to use their platforms in the highest frequencies and in the highest volumes. And the fact that you have all of these people who want to, I mean, in my network, I know lots of people who are trying to bet hundreds of thousands of weekends, uh, a thousand, hundreds of thousands of dollars a weekend and literally can't get that action down anywhere. And I think we are aiming to be the central infrastructure for the entire um, sports betting ecosystem, whether that's hedge funds, professional bettors, casual bettors, you know, we think that we'll be that sort of central infrastructure. And that's how you really can envision a, an industry where there's not just, you know, hundreds of billions, but trillions of dollars in sports betting volume and really transforming this from just an entertainment product where everyone loses money besides the house to, you know, basically a zero sum game, the same way securities or other sorts of financial uh, exchanges are structured. Um, so, yeah, I think like if you've spent decades in, in this industry, it's hard to really see that coming to fruition. But I think people with long term views, um, you know, who are trying to invest not just, you know, for what, what is this industry going to look like 18 months from now? But what is it going to look like 18 years from now? I think it's easier for them to buy into our vision. You know, it reminds me of Glossier, the makeup company. They like to say like, oh, we're only on year nine of an 100 year journey. And really, I think that's the approach we try to take is like, I, I, it's not like, you know, this is going to be like my life's, you know, work. It's not like something I'm trying to, to build and sell as quickly as possible. It's, I, I really do take the mentality of, we're on year three of an 100-year journey, and how do we actually build a, a model and a corporate infrastructure that is sustainable and scalable? Awesome. Love the boldness of the ambition, Jacob. I'd just love to ask you as well before we wrap up today, and you've alluded to this a couple of times in, in the conversation, but you know, number one, building an exchange with where regulated betting is at in the U.S. right now naturally is going to invite a lot of skeptics, right? Uh, you, you talked about that. Um, but also, you know, you talked about the fact you, you know, you're, you're younger and you got a bit of a chip on your shoulder. And I was sort of curious, like, as you're out there on this mission, pursuing this vision, how do you, I guess, deal with people that show skepticism about either the model or the opportunity you're pursuing? And frankly, just like, how do you deal with, I guess, haters and, and how do you sort of wrap your head around that uh, and still maintain enthusiasm and, and optimism? Yeah, you know, it, it, it can definitely be a little defeating to hear people that are highly skeptical, but. Then I talk to my users on a daily basis and they're, you know, incredibly excited. The amount of people that within 30 seconds of me telling them what I'm building, they're, they're saying like, wow, that's incredible. I've had that idea. didn't think it was implementable, but if you can pull this off, it's going to change the world. Like that, ultimately the people, like those are the people whose views matter. It's not like some, you know, investors that are, you know, whatever, living in Mykonos and, you know, don't really give a shit about the industry. It's people who like the, the, the you know, who are actually sports betting on a daily basis and. I think there's also this massive disconnect between people who run sports betting companies and people who use sports betting platforms where like you go to these industry conferences, then you hear these executives of these companies talk about how do we milk as much money out of our users as possible. And, you know, most of them probably are not placing bets on a daily basis. You know, it's like their mentality is that of a casino executive, whereas, you know, our mentality, and this is not just my view, but that of every person at our company is like, no, we're building a platform for us ourselves to use where like. 
we would get excited to use this platform on a daily basis. And we think that will permeate to excite every other user that downloads our app. So yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there, there also is an element of like, you know, haters motivate us, but ultimately I think we're, we're passionate enough that we don't need uh, motivation from, from haters. You know, we self-motivate sufficiently. Right on, right on. We talked about the upcoming NFL season and some of the go-to-market plans for Novig, but let's just uh, hypothetically say you got a crystal ball in front of you. You're looking into it in five years' time in your wildest dreams. Where's Novig at then? And just what does, I guess, the general landscape look like and where do exchanges fit within it? Yeah, so like I think that this distinction between exchanges and retail operators will sort of dissipate. I think people will look for, like a lot of people think like, oh, how is Novig different from these other exchanges? But most sports bettors are not, are not thinking that way. They're thinking like, how is Novik different from whether it's, you know, a DFS company or a FanDuel or whatever. So ultimately, we're all going after the same users, the same eyeballs. And um, I think that exchanges will really enter the mainstream. As I said, I don't think the fundamental business model of this industry is sustainable. So I think you'll have certain operators leave the market or, you know, you'll have more M&A activity. But yeah, I think exchanges in five years from now will probably make up about 15 to 30% of total volume in the US. And, you know, I think we'll also expand the market, as I said, in ways that really is unfathomable for people who are deeply ingrained in this industry. If you think about Robinhood, for example, they got rid of the $8 per trade fee and you saw retail stock trading volume go up 10x or whatever it was. I think similarly, by eliminate, eliminating this 8% per trade fee, you'll, you'll see similar results happen to uh, sports betting volume. You'll enable people to move in and out of positions without having to eat this 8% cost. You'll also create a platform where you know, hedge funds and different sort of financial institutions will enter the space. Once you have like the Citadels and the James Streets of the world coming into sports betting, it'll be very difficult for you know, these legacy sports books to really compete on either a pricing standpoint or on a technology standpoint. And um, yeah, and then also I think there's just lots of people. It's the number one reason why people don't start betting on sports is and the re- number one reason why they stop betting on sports is be- because they understand it's a losing value proposition. In the long run, you're losing money. And if we're able to change that, transform this industry from a massively negative sum game to effectively a zero sum game or as close to that as possible, I think we'll see you know radical expansion of the market. And I think that we are well positioned to capture the lion's share of that liquidity. Awesome. That takes us to my standard closing question, Jacob. I know you listened to the pod before, but for anybody that doesn't know my question, I'll just quickly wrap it off. If you weren't working on Novig, if you weren't doing anything with tech like you're building or in sports betting or in any of your previous jobs in a parallel universe, what would you be doing instead? That's a good question. So, you know, I, I didn't have any like full-time job prior to this. So I, I will say that I was, as I mentioned earlier, um, applying to JD, PhD programs, thinking about becoming a law professor. So I could see a world in which I was doing that and maybe playing poker on the side. You know, I, I am interested in politics. I can, I can see myself doing that in a future career as well. And uh, yeah, I'd probably not be living uh, in the US. I'd probably be, you know, trying to explore the world in ways that my current job doesn't allow me to do. So yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. For people listening that want to check out the product, maybe sign up for a wait list, uh, follow you guys on social, get in touch with you, where can you point them towards to do all of that? Yeah, go to our website, uh, novig.us, and you can sign up for early access. We'll probably be running a nationwide tournament at at some point in the next couple of months to uh, allow users who aren't in Colorado to access the platform and win cash prizes. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok. We are building out all of our socials now. So we're, I'd say, incredibly responsive to user feedback. As I mentioned before, we've 
uh, implemented features that users, you know, only three days after users have suggested them. So if you have any ideas for ways we can change the app or, you know, TikTok ideas or whatever, we're all ears. And you can also email me personally at uh, jacob at novic.co, J-A-C-O-B at N-O-V-I-T.co. And um, I have a pretty good track record of responding. Right on, Jacob. Well, look, really appreciate you joining the pod. Again, congratulations on the recent funding. Congratulations on getting the beta product to market. Really looking forward to following the story and wishing you and the team a lot of success for the first NFL season ahead. Yeah, thanks so much, Jesse. It was a pleasure.